Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. I'm one of your hosts, Josiah, and this is The Canteen. This is one of our regular segments here where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week, we continue in our study of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20 and discuss idols. Let's listen in as Blake brings us this week's message. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open it to Exodus 20. We'll have it on the screen as well. Um, And I also want to encourage you to put one finger there or a bookmark or something and also find Exodus 32. Partway through the sermon this morning, we'll, we'll flip over there. Um, we're in a series uh, on the Ten Commandments that we're calling Bold Humility. Bold Humility, because we believe that these commandments were given to us not to be restrictions, um, uh, restrictions alone, I should say, but also a grace from God that helps us, that provides a map for us to, to live in the freedom that God has given to us through His Son, Jesus. And so uh, last week we started with the first commandment. It's a good place to start, the first one. And uh, that one was to have no other gods before you. And today we, we come to the second one, and um, it feels a little familiar. Don't make idols. So if the first commandment is about worshiping anything other than God. The second commandment is about worshiping anything less than God. It's, it's an image of God, perhaps, that reminds us of Him. But these images of God can only image God in part. So when God says in the second commandment, don't make idols, this, this word make is the same word uh, that was used when God created all things. So God is saying to us, don't don't create an image of me out of something that I've already created in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth. I've created all of these things. All of these things that I've created are less than me. So don't shape some of those created things into something that you treat like me, because it's less than me. It may reflect me, but not fully. So you're only getting a picture of, of who I am. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 40, verse 18. He says, With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with Him? I hope that as we just lay some simple definitions down to start, that you already begin to sense that, man, we, we oftentimes make God so, so small. Too often we begin to shape God into our image. We consume all these images of Him, these glimpses of who God really is, these pictures and portrayals of Him, and then we use them to shape what we do or do not want to believe about who God is. Let me give you an example from my own life. I grew up um, in what was essentially an all-white community. And because of that, I never had questions about what Jesus looked like. I saw something like this on the felt felt boards most Sundays in church. Jesus was happy, white. He had, you know, great glowing bright eyes. You know, this this was Jesus. 
And then I got a little older and he probably got a little older with me. I don't know. You know, like this was, this was Jesus. So I finished high school and I moved to Campbellsville University and I lived on a, a, a dorm floor with most of my teammates on the football team there. Um, I was the racial minority. And, and so one day I walk into my buddy's dorm room and he had a picture of Jesus on the wall. It looked something like this. Oh, my mind was blown. My Jesus looked like the other one. And so he had an image of Jesus and, and I had an image of Jesus and, and, and I wasn't sure anymore which one was more like Jesus. The words of Isaiah. What likeness will you set up for comparison with the God of the universe? With him. Of course, now we've got all that answered because we all know he probably looks like the chosen Jesus, Jonathan Rumi. So this has to be him. This has to be him. It's got to be. You say, Blake, why is it bad to have an image of who God is? Doesn't that make him more relatable? He gets us after all, right? Well, first, we need to get something clear. I didn't say, don't make an idol. God said, don't make an idol. That should be enough. Like, we could just stop right there. But, but secondly, it's bad because when we have these images that are kind of like God, but they're not fully God, we begin to have this phrase that forms in our mind. I like to think of God as, hmm. And as we begin to fill in that blank with all kinds of things in our world, we begin to reveal our true heart, that we want to make God what we want him to be instead of worshiping the truth of who he is. And when we do that, we're, we're shortchanging ourselves because we've missed the magnitude and the glory and the majesty of God by preferring an image of him instead of him. You see, it's not something other than God. An idol is often something less than God. I spent some time in the home of some Hindu friends of mine not long ago, and we were sitting there, and I noticed like an actual shaped idol sitting in their home. It looked like this. And I became curious about this, this idol. And I learned that, that that idol sitting there is a god, false god, who promises financial prosperity. And so the idea here is that if they believe that they, they believe that if they worshiped this God, they were faithful to him and they bowed to him, and they submitted to him, that financial prosperity would come to them and to their home. What came out of that encounter surprised me a little bit because I, I kind of expected when I saw that to, to have this sense of, wait, I know the one true God. But instead, God had something different in mind. It was this conviction that although I may not have shaped God into to some metal elephant man, I often worship similar idols. I often worship God, or I'm faithful to Him, or I serve Him, because I'm actually hoping for something else. Financial prosperity, success, right? And just because I don't have this sitting in the corner of my house doesn't mean that there's not an idol sitting in the corner of my heart. 
uh, that I might be worshiping what God can give me instead of God himself. Y'all, we all do this, myself included. I often miss the magnitude and glory of God because I worship something less than him in the name of him. And we have to understand that because here's what happens. We become slaves to the idols we shape. We become slaves to the idols we shape. Look back at the second commandment for just a minute. There's actually like three do nots in here. He says, uh, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. And then he comes back. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There's a, a progression here. He's revealing this progression of idol worship in our lives. We, we make these idols and these images that, that call us back to something more powerful than ourselves. And yet they're just a glimpse of who God is. And then before long, we begin to bow to them. We submit our lives to them. We hold them up and we honor what they say. And before we know it, our lives are, are directed towards serving them. Our purpose in life revolves around making them happy, fulfilling their requests, working and serving and worshiping them. We become slaves to the idols we shape. Can we talk about one? Our children are often idols. Don't get me wrong. Scripture also teaches us that children are a blessing from the Lord. They reflect the goodness and glory of the image of God. But that's often where idolatry starts. We make them, these children of ours. We create them, and they are wonderful. I smiled at one this morning. Like They're, they're amazing. There's something spiritual and otherworldly the first time we hold them, isn't there? They remind us of God. Something like God, but still less than Him. And we're not always sure when it happens or how, But before long, we're bowing to them. After all, they they rightfully need us so desperately in those early days. You cry, I get things. One Christian leader writes, children that are worshipped as idols have absolute power. They determine what they want to do and what they do not want to do. They dictate their schedules. And if they don't like a person that tries to hold them accountable... Parents make sure that the other person changes in order for their child to get their way. Who wants to sign up to be youth coach next season? Right? A child that is worshipped will even tell the parents where and when they want to worship at a local church, writes this author. With this symptom, he says, God doesn't have the ultimate authority. Our children do. So we serve them. We serve them. He goes on to say, parents who idolize their children spend everything they earn, plus some, to generate materialistic happiness in their children. They'll sacrifice all their time and energy to make their kids successful in some type of worldly pursuit like sports, music, or academics. No resource is spared to elevate the success and happiness of their children. We become slaves to the idols we shape. We make them we bow to them. We serve them. And so God, God is trying to protect the Israelites and us in this second commandment when he says, don't make, don't bow, and don't serve. You're going to become slaves to those things. And so we, we need to wrestle, and we, we started this wrestle last week with, what, what, like, what's your idol? 
What do, you, what do you want to make God into? When you think about that phrase, I like to think of God as what goes in the blank. What are you bowing to? What are you submitting to in your life? What's that thing that you just can't get away from? Because idols begin to silently dictate the way that you live. They become this authority in your life. You begin to do what they demand of you without question. Another way to ask it is, what are you working for in life? How many of us are working for retirement or for a certain home or for a job status or whatever? You, you work towards these things. You find yourself giving up resources to keep your idols happy. Time you don't want to spend, money you don't want to give, effort you feel like is wasted, all to keep the idol pleased or glorified. What idol are you serving? And we, we start to wrestle with this and we're like, why do we do this to ourselves? Like, like why, why do we allow our heart to be attached and given to these things that are less than God, but really good? Alistair Begg says, the reason we make images of God is because we want a God who is small enough to understand, weak enough to be manipulated, and soft enough not to punish wrongdoers. I'm just going to read that again. I, like, I need to hear it. The reason we make images of God is because we want a God who is small enough to be understood, weak enough to be manipulated, and soft enough not to punish wrongdoers. I like to think of God like that. Say, Blake, is there any good news in the second commandment? There is. The good news is that the God speaking the second commandment isn't any of those things. He's not any of those things. In fact, he says right here in Scripture, I am a jealous God. He's a jealous God who separates you from what enslaves you. He's a jealous God who separates you from what enslaves you. Look at uh, verse 5, the, the second half again. He says, for I, the Lord, it's, it's in all caps, that's, that's Yahweh. We talked about this, right? I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. It's like, all right, he's a, he's a jealous God. Like, what's all this stuff about, like, if you don't love me, there's curses, and if you do, there's blessings. Like, what's going on there? What does God say? Well, this command... And some other passages have led to conversations about what people call generational sin. It's, it's the idea that sin and its consequences impact the generations that come after you. And, and this idea has kind of gotten a bad rap because it can be viewed as this crushing curse from God. If you sin, I'm taking it out on your children and your grandchildren. I don't think that's quite fair to what we read here in the text. The word, that the translation we read today translates as bringing, as God is bringing these consequences, is, is kind of tough to translate. In fact, if you have a different version, it probably has a different word. There's a lot of different words used here. Now, I, I'm no like biblical language expert, but I, but I do know this. The word here is carrying this passive tone. In a way, God is saying... When you worship idols, I'm going to sit back and let sin have its full effect. If you give your hearts to an idol, I'm going to let you see 
what that idol actually does for you. And it's not much. And so this idea of a curse is actually almost a loving warning. It's like God saying, I'm telling you, you worship these other idols and we will all watch as your sin affects your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children. When you worship something less than God, you see, it keeps the next generation from seeing how big and good and true and loving God really is. You want a reason to remove your children from their throne as an idol in your life? Your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children. And don't we know this to be true? Like we we inherently know this is true. Because good or bad, the way that, that you approach things in life is shaped by the way your parents raised or didn't raise you, isn't it? Like you know this to be true. And, and if those people who shaped your life shaped their lives around idols, idols that they bowed to and served, whether you liked it or not, you were influenced to do the same. Their gods became your gods. So God's saying here in the second commandment, don't worship idols. Because if you do, it's going to impact those who come after you. And, and so as he often is, God in this, this, this second commandment, he's trying to save you from guilt. Like, don't we feel guilty to think that the, the sins in my life impact my children and my grandchildren and my grandchildren? Like, I, like I feel a little icky and dirty just thinking about that. And so God wants to save us from that. He says, listen, don't even do it. Don't make the idols so that you won't bow to them, so you won't serve them. Don't do it. Because I want you to experience my faithful love. God says, listen, that can happen if you worship a false idol. But if you'll worship me, I will show you faithful love. Faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, the word showing here, is the same root word as make, as in do not make an idol. And so God, because he's just cool like this, is like flipping this whole thing on its head. You can either make an idol or I will make and create faithful love in your life. God's implying that if if you don't make an idol, if if you honor that and instead approach me, the real me, if you worship me, I'll make faithful love, this hesed love, grace come to you. I will completely remake your life as I separate you from what enslaves you. And that will affect you and those who come after you for a thousand generations. As long as you can imagine, if you love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's going to make ripples that you, could, like, you can't imagine. And so what he's saying right here is a nod. It's a foreshadowing to Jesus. Because it was his faithful love that, that allowed you to experience the grace of God for a thousand generations. It's a nod to Jesus from a jealous God who separates you from what enslaves you. Now, the same Israelites who heard God say the second commandment are also the most notorious for breaking it, right? You might have heard the story. Even if you've never been in church, you might have heard of the golden calf. The Israelites are, are waiting on Moses to come back down the mountain with the commandments. So like real time here. And while they're waiting, they decide 
it would be a really good idea to make an image of God to worship while they wait. Now, it's really important to recognize, this is Exodus 32, if you want to make that flip over in your Bible, right? It's really important to recognize that the Israelites still want to worship Yahweh. They're done with all those other gods from, Exodus, from Egypt that we talked about last week. They want to worship Yahweh, but they're impatient. And so in Exodus 32, we read about the Israelites making the golden calf. Aaron leads them to make it and then announces that they're going to worship Yahweh the next day. So the next day, they wake up and they start bringing offerings. They bow to the idol. They dance around it. And as they spend their whole day in service to Yahweh God, represented in the image of a golden calf. The problem is that golden calf is not God. It's an image made to represent him. It's less than him. But the next part of the story, the part that we often forget because we don't like to think of God this way, is perhaps the best news in the whole story. I just want to read it together from Exodus 32, beginning in verse 25. Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, Come to me. And all the Levites gathered around Moses. And he told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Like Blake, I don't like to think of God that way. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Yahweh, our God, is a jealous God. He wants your love, and He will separate you from the sin that enslaves you, from the idols that that keep you from his faithful love. You see, that's exactly what you and I need. That's the good news that you and I need because we know inherently that idols are grabbing our hearts all the time. And so we need a Savior who separates us from what enslaves us, the sin that lives in us, the idols we cling to. You need a Savior who separates you from sin. When you'd rather trust in the God of your own making than in the one true God of heaven and earth, you need a Savior, a jealous Savior who steps in and says, no, don't give your heart to this. When your heart is afraid to walk away from your idols because you've found a place that's comfortable or pleasurable or good in your sight, he steps in and says, no, you need so much more. I've got so much more to give you. When, when you are worried that you'll never be free from sin or from suffering, Man, you need a Savior who separates you from sin. When you're filled with regret for the burdens of the sin that that causes others, like you need a Savior who separates you from that sin, who forgives you and shows you faithful love for a thousand generations. You see, in those moments where we are riddled with sin and idols are clinging for our hearts and they're clawing at us and pulling us away from the one true God, in those moments, we don't want to settle for a picture of God. 
We need to look for the person of God. Not something less than Him, but all of Him. We need to look for the person of God like John the Baptist did one day as he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need a jealous God who separates us from what enslaves us. And just as John the Baptist was looking not for a picture but for the person of God, we too in today's day and age are waiting for the person of God, Jesus Christ, to return. The Apostle John caught a glimpse of him in a vision that we read about in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. I, I just, you know, like, I don't want us to make an idol of this passage, but I, I want us to maybe have a corrected vision, a, a bigger vision of who our God really is. Then I saw heaven opened, it reads, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's look for that God. That God who is jealous for your love, for your heart. That's a jealous God that I would trust to separate me from my sin. That jealous God separates you from what enslaves you. So what do we do? We, we wait. We wait on Him, the one true God. We don't settle for our picture or any picture of God, but we wait for the one true and holy God who is coming for us. That's all the Israelites had to do. And they messed it up. They got impatient. They had experienced the goodness and the power of God in rescuing them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And then He'd showed Himself to them on the mountain. But when things weren't happening fast enough for them, they made their own idol. Exodus 32, 1 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Waiting's hard, isn't it? It's real hard. We get real impatient. Our community group was meeting this week when uh, Sherry brought up a memorable moment in her faith journey. She shared that back in the day, She's getting older now, you know. I'll pay for that one. <clears throat> Back in the day, she'd been studying Exodus. And as she came to this passage in Scripture, she found herself thinking, how in the world could the Israelites have seen God do all the incredible things he did and then make the golden calf? And then Sherry said, God just impressed upon me really clear. You need to apologize to the Israelites because you do that all the time. And then Sherry said to our group, have you ever had to apologize to the Israelites? Because I have. <laughs> we probably all need to, don't we? We're impatient people in general. 
And that can be especially true with God. It happened to me this week. I didn't like how slow the sermon writing process was going. It's supposed to happen on Wednesdays, God. I like to think of God as, as the God who meets me on Wednesdays and makes sure the sermon gets written. Makes my week go a whole lot smoother. I'm efficient that way. Huh. So when I had a scattered brain and a proud heart at 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, I just knocked it out. It was Wednesday after all. And the God that I worship, he meets me on Wednesdays. But since it didn't seem like he was this week, I just went ahead, crafted my own sermon, and I sent it out to the guys who faithfully read, pray over, and sharpen my sermons week by week by week by week. Why? Because church is a y'all thing. Even up here, church is a y'all thing. That's why we tell you to get in groups. Not just because we want to see you in groups, because church is a y'all thing. The sermon I sent isn't the sermon you've heard today. Thank God for using the great theologian D.J. Williams. I mean that for a sharpening comment that pointed me back to waiting on God. Listen into what he said. When we fail to believe that God's faithful love is worth waiting for, we get impatient. And when we get impatient, we're tempted to reshape God in the image of our desires. The Israelites didn't abandon God for other gods here. They reshaped the image of God to fit what they want, a deity they can see and celebrate like those of the Egyptians they left and the nations around them. In Exodus 32.5, they're still proclaiming a festival to Yahweh, but it's their version of Yahweh that they worship. They've taken the incomparable, holy God of the universe, and they've dumbed him down to something that fits in their pocket, metaphorically speaking. This new Yahweh can inspire celebration and dancing, but never awe. He can inspire joy, but never conviction and change. DJ says we're tempted to do the same. When we become impatient, we reshape a God who fits our desires. Surely God wants me to be happy, so I should leave my marriage and pursue this relationship. Surely God wants me to be successful, so it's okay if I cut these corners with my business dealings. Surely God wants me to be loving, so it's okay if I round off the sharp edges of his character and, command, and commands to fit in better with the culture's expectations of the way I live. Surely God wants me to, to have peace, so it's okay if I check out on loving and pouring into others when it gets hard. Impatience, you see, is often unbelief in disguise. We stop believing that Moses is coming back. We're not sure that the God who rescued us is really there. And so I'd encourage you this week to, to sit with Exodus 32. Maybe you do it with your group. Uh, maybe it's, it's something else. But however you do it, identify the piece of God's character that you find unbelievable in this passage. And then ask God to help you believe it. Wait on the real God. Worship the person of God, not just the picture of him. I'd encourage you this week to, to pause in those hard moments of life and recognize that God is doing something in the midst of your hardship. Ask him what, he, what that is that he's doing instead of rushing to some version of God that justifies you running from the situation. I challenge you this week to, to look at what's crushing you in life just pressing in and controlling you, and then to see the idol that's behind it, trying to get you to hurry up and miss the one true God. Because the truth is, there is one God, 
And he is so jealous for you that he sent his very own son to separate you from that sin. In the moments after the golden calf is made, God wants to crush the people. Like, I don't like that kind of God. God wants to crush the people. It's jarring to read some of God's words in Exodus 32. And in light of this, God tells Moses to go back down the mountain. Get down there. And when Moses does, he's so appalled that that he crushes the tablets God has written on in his anger. And then, then Moses gets down there and he crushes up the golden calf, sprinkles it in some water, and makes the people drink it. Like, I don't like that kind of God. That's not the kind of God I'm thinking of. Moses, you see, and God, he doesn't want their sin to bring consequences to the coming generations. Moses heard the second commandment. Don't make idols. Don't do it. Don't bow. Don't serve. Perhaps that's you today. You're convicted, crushed. You don't like the idea that your sin will impact the next generation. Maybe you feel like Moses. What do we need to do? Let's crush something. Let's do this. Let's drink the water. I don't know. We've got to do something. It's appalling to me to think that my sin has consequences for my children and my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. Moses is so crushed that he's actually willing to be crushed on behalf of the Israelite people. He's willing to give up eternity with God to make atonement, to make a payment for the people's sins. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 30. The following day, the day after the massacre that the Levites led, right? Moses says to the people, y'all have committed a grave sin. Now, I'll go up to the Lord and perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Like, I want to pay for this so that that nobody else has to feel the consequences of it so that they can know and experience the faithful love of God. So Moses returned to the Lord. He goes up the mountain. He said, all these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now, Lord, if you would only forgive their sin. But if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Whew! And the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. And see, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. No other man can take your place. Moses tried. Nor can you take the place of another. You are responsible for your sin. But a jealous God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to separate you from that sin. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I want you to know there's real consequences. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. The sin that often has consequences for the generations to come after us, is paid for by the Savior. 
a jealous God who separates you from what enslaves you. The band's going to come today. And as they come, I want you to wrestle with the reality that you are responsible for your sin. And as you think about that, I want you to, to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And do you believe that when he went to the cross and died, it was to take the place for your sins so that you might experience the faithful love of God for a thousand generations? Do you believe that? If you aren't sure that you believe that, but you want to believe that, that that you need to confess that that's true, man, come. Because it doesn't matter that I believe that. It matters if, if you believe that. He doesn't care if you came to church that, that, to a church that said that's true. You are responsible for your sin. And Jesus is the only one who can pay for it. So I'm going to ask you again, do you believe that he paid for your sin? If you believe that, you've never told anyone that, you've never confessed that that was true, and when the band starts to play, would you come? Because salvation is available to anyone in the whole world who believes. You have a sin problem, all of you. But God separates you from that sin that enslaves you. And after believing that Jesus rescued you from that sin, have you been baptized by immersion like we saw Melissa do this morning? Because you see, this is how you let everyone know, I believe in Jesus. And Jesus reminds us that when you think of God as as someone who, who doesn't need us to go public with our faith in baptism, when you deny him, he denies you before the Father. God doesn't save people with good intentions. He saves those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are baptized believers, man, we're invited to come take communion today as a remembrance that there is only one who can take the consequences of your sin. Only one who was crushed on your behalf. Only one who can trade your sins and transform them into generations of faithful love. And his name is Jesus, and his body and blood is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And that's why we take communion together, to remember that this week's sins, last week's sins, and, and, and the week before that are all paid for by the blood and body of Christ. He separates you from all sin. And that's good news from the second commandment. Let's pray. Father, save us. Save us from ourselves, from our idols, from our sin. As we get ready to respond to you in worship, Lord, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of the holy God. The holy God who sent his son to separate us from our sin so that we might experience your love forever. Spirit, as you lead us in this time of worship, I pray that you would, uh, that you would do the work, the, the, the ministry to each person's heart and soul, that you would uh, give them courage to take the next steps that they need to take, whether that's Uh, confessing their belief in Jesus, whether that's saying, I need to go public with my faith in baptism, whether that's, man, just repenting, calling out idols for what they are and saying, I'm going to wait on the Lord instead. Lead us, Spirit, in this time of response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, Josiah again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. We hope it was helpful to you and that you were encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together. If you're a part of Christ's community, let's consider how we can practically apply this into our lives this week as we go outside to be the church. If you're not a member of Christ's community, we're so glad that you joined us, and we hope that this message was helpful to you as well. If you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in, and experience Christian community as it was designed to be. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and we'll see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.